Lord, would you open our hearts and minds now as we consider your word. In Jesus' name. I spent a few days as a kid in New Orleans. I don't know if you've been to New Orleans. Uh, and it was kind of a cloudy mess in my mind because I was moving in a haze of sickness, vomiting at major tourist sites, <laughs> off river boats at the zoo, Bourbon Street. And that may color some of my associations, but New Orleans is a pit. Um, it's one of those cities that is associated in the popular mind with wickedness. There's a number of cities in our country that have that. They're notoriously wicked. And so they, they're connected with sin or evil or debauchery. Think of New Orleans, Las Vegas, Miami. Sometimes cities like this are, are, are also linked with Babylon. There's this, we think of them as a kind of Babylon, which was, that was famous for excess. Too much of everything. Too much sins of the flesh. And there are Christians who live in such cities. Sometimes we forget that. There are Christians who live there. Some of you know people who live there. Probably Las Vegas, quite a few. Uh, and you're probably aware through them of the kinds of challenges that families face in such a place. If they're your friends or maybe it's your family. Because carving out a Christian community in, in such a place whose economies, their whole economy is driven by sin and indulgence. That's a serious challenge for a Christian community. And those brothers and sisters need our prayers. They need them. Well, I start that way because that's the kind of place Pergamum was. As we're moving through the seven churches, we come to the third. Pergamum was the farthest north of the cities in this uh, cycle of seven churches. And it was the official Roman center of the province of Asia. The province of Asia, is, it's a, you could think of it like a state. It was a governmental, large governmental unit in the Roman Empire. And uh, Pergamum was the capital. It was here at the capital that the cult of emperor worship was conducted. At the, at the seat of power. This is where emperor worship in that province was established. It's where it was maintained. This was the place where the test of loyalty to Rome was conducted. Every person would have to, when called upon, burn some incense before a statue of the emperor, an act of worship. Will you burn the incense? That was this question. The Christian community had to face. Will you burn the incense when the time comes, when you're called upon? And the question was put to them, and, and the, the Roman officialdom, they knew the quandary. Just burn the incense. That's all. Just a pinch. You don't have to believe it in your heart. You don't have to actually think that the emperor is a god. We don't think so either. You don't have to believe that. You don't love him. 
just burn the incense and make the little bow. That's all. So there was the official state religion there. But Pergamum was also known like all Roman uh, provincial capitals as a place of syncretism, of combining of religions. This was a Roman strategy. Usually Romans weren't interested in stamping out religions. That, that wasn't their thing. They just wanted order. Instead, they would combine and incorporate Jupiter, Zeus, same person in their mind, same God, as long as the emperor's sovereignty was acknowledged. There's room for any other God. At Pergamum, there was this unique combination, uh, to my knowledge, unique within the Roman world, Greco-Roman world, of worship to Zeus and Asclepius as a combined deity. Uh, Asclepius was the Greek god of healing, often represented by snakes. So if you've gone to a doctor's office and you see the staff with that snake wrapped around, that's Asclepius. It's the Greek god of healing. Connected with snakes. Asclepius' temple, gross, full of snakes. At Pergamum, there was an old temple of Asclepius, but in the first century, there was a newer temple to a syncretized or combined deity, Zeus the Savior. Zeus the Savior. It was Zeus like the healer. And in that temple, there was a throne where a statue of Zeus, this has been excavated, a statue of Zeus with staff in one hand and snake in the other. He was this combination. Well, it seems to me that when Jesus calls their city, we're looking at the letter to Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, when he calls their city the place where Satan has his throne, or I know your city, the place where Satan lives, there would have risen in their minds these, these pictures, these connections, this serpent deity, and this pretender, and the emperor, a mere man, calling himself a god, demanding worship. Yes, this serpent god calling himself savior. Well, the kind of effect that this environment, that this culture had on the Christians. It becomes evident as Jesus speaks to them. First, foregrounded, they were hard-pressed. It was tough to live in a place like this. There had been executions of believers, including one notable leader named Antipas. This is the only time in the letters we get someone singled out for their faithful witness to death. Antipas, old church, uh, old church writings, descriptions uh, communicate a gruesome, gruesome death for this Antipas, who was a pastor. They may be legendary, so I'm not going to potentially bring confusion here, but however he was executed, he was executed. Uh, and it was done because he was a faithful witness to Jesus, and that means, 
most certainly that he refused the pinch of incense. And it seems that that courage helps the church there. It helps them. Jesus commends them. You hold fast my name. And you didn't deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. You saw what happened to him, and somehow you were strengthened by that rather than cowed by it. This kind of thing happens today, right? Communist countries, Muslim countries, Hindu countries. It's often the case when there's an official persecution that pastors are targeted, and when they are killed, the fury is spent. There's an intensity of hate and fury. But when the execution happens, it's something drains out. And that seems to have happened. So Jesus commends them for not denying him in that time. They accepted the name, they accepted that the name of Jesus is theirs. Jesus is ours. In the eyes of the Roman government, there were two, two very distinctive markers of genuine Christian commitment. They were outward. Uh, we get this from Pliny the Younger. He's, uh, he, he was an official in just north of this area, writing to the Emperor Trajan about how stubborn Christians were, how annoying. But the two markers were they wouldn't burn the incense and they wouldn't renounce the name of Jesus. There were pretenders. There were some, he, he said, yeah, we, this is the way we tell the genuine Christians because some will renounce the name of Jesus. So when Jesus says, you hold fast my name and you didn't renounce or you didn't deny my faith, he's really very likely talking about a public act, an official public act in which they did not renounce him. And that's obviously good, right? You read that, you want to cheer. Well done, I, I like that. I, may that be said of us. And these Christians, they're willing to be known as Christians, willing to suffer. They're willing to be a unique, distinct group. But that is not the whole story, alas. We continue to read the culture of Pergamum affects them in other ways. Jesus goes on. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In a word, compromise. You have compromise. Some among you are, in fact, going to the temples. Christians, you, you faithfully hold fast to my name. You don't pretend that you're not Christians but you compromise. Jesus tells them that you've accepted the message of compromise that is animating the culture around them. Syncretism, 
Pergamum is the place of syncretism, of combination. This, was, this represented the genius of Rome, Roman administration, Roman success in expanding the empire. That was their genius. Combine, combine. Take what works, make it more efficient. Rome always known for efficiency. So rather than wage endless war with the population, make a big show of dominance and then invite to compromise, invite to surrender, invite to a mingling culture. We can actually get along. We'll just administrate. You continue doing what you're doing. We'll administrate. We'll bring order to what's working here. Jesus calls this the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you remember the story of Balaam from Numbers, this is uh, after Exodus. The Israelites came to the border. They got frightened by the size of the people, and so they wandered for 40 years. Numbers is about that time. During that period, they were camped out in Moab, doing the 40-year camp out. Ended up in Moab, and the king of Moab sees this large group of Israelites on the plains. And so he calls a sorcerer named Balaam. Famous sorcerer. Balaam even mentioned outside biblical texts. He was known for effective curses. Balaam comes along, but he found, after the invitation comes, that he was dealing with here a people that the almighty creator God had favored, had chosen to be his own people. And Balaam understood that he could not make a spiritual pronouncement against the will of God, the, the creator, almighty God. So it's a, he says, I can't curse what God has blessed. Well, three times the king of Moab gets, uh, gets Mo, um, Balaam to make a spiritual pronouncement hoping that he's going to get a curse for Israel, and each of the times it ends up as a blessing for Israel. Balaam even seems to get a kick out of this. The, the third time, he doesn't even consult God's will. He just knows. So, he's, all right, we'll do the sacrifice, and I'll, I'll bless him. Watching the king of Moab get upset. Don't get the idea that Balaam is a good guy. A, a superficial reading, we can... We can end up there. Balaam is not a good guy. Balaam is a sorcerer. Balaam's insight and power comes from evil. He just knew that he couldn't speak a curse in the face of the creator God. So whatever spirit was animating him, whatever spirit gave him power, guided him, also knew that he could not stand before the Almighty God and speak contrary to the will of the Almighty God. It's, it's basic spiritual dynamics there. Balaam is not a good guy. Every sorcerer loves his own interest above all. And so Balaam saw that playing out. When he was done failing to curse he gave the Moabites another strategy. 
In exchange for money, that's what he loved, his own interests, he advised the Moabite leaders, you, you can't actually stand in the face of the creator God. You've got to go around the side. Send Moabite girls to seduce Israelite men. Lead them into worshiping Moabite gods. Get them to compromise. Get them to syncretize. Yes, you're still Israelites, but worship other gods. Get them consulting their passions. And at the very least, what you'll do, at the very least, you'll weaken their cohesion as a people because some won't go along with it. You'll weaken them. You'll weaken their sense of their ethnicity, their being together as a people, being one people. That, for sure, that will be weakened. But at best, at best, you can see them, at best, you will get them to provoke their God. He'll be provoked. He may even destroy them. He may abandon them. And it almost succeeded. Numbers 25.1 and following. While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. And the Lord does, in fact, he purify his people. This is the last major incident where a plague comes. Remember, 40, about 40 years before, he told the Israelites, all of you of fighting age who refused to go in and you, you denied what I said to you, you rejected my words, none of you will go into the promised land. This is the last incident in which those people die. But the strategy, get them to compromise. That's Balaam's teaching. Get them to think according to their fleshly desires so that they ignore or they forget what God had done. So that they ignore or forget that God cares about the body, too. That, that his law actually, it doesn't just include, it doesn't just include the burning of sacrifices, it includes the whole of life. Get them to forget that. Yes, let God Almighty have your sacrifices. We'll do the festivals, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths. We'll do all that. He's fine with the other stuff, too, though. Get them to forget. The pleasures of the moment, and this is kind of the spirit of compromise, the pleasures of the moment will outweigh the gifts and the grace of yesterday. When we forget the gifts and the grace of yesterday, then we're open to compromise. And we forget the promises of tomorrow. The pleasures of today. And Jesus says to Pergamum, there are some among you who hold that notion. 
You hold it. Some of you have forgotten. You've forgotten the life and the freedom that was bought for you, given to you. You've forgotten the promises of the kingdom that are unfolding. With the result that you're compromising today. The other error is similar. You have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Little is known about this group. They're named clearly for someone called Nicholas. Some think this was one of the deacons, Nicholas the proselyte, one of the first seven deacons. I don't think so. Um, but it doesn't really matter. Named for someone called Nicholas. But basically, it was a kind of Gnostic teaching. <clears throat> they held that what you did with the body doesn't matter. The body's perishing, the body's dust, so all that matters is what is done with the spirit. Only the spirit's eternal. So you can do whatever you want with the body and still be holy. You see, that's similar to Balaam's trick. Why they're mentioned together. It's compromise. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Given where they are. This is Pergamum. Coming back around, right? In Pergamum was the spirit of compromise. It was the spirit of mingling. So some of them were confident they could be Christians, they could remain faithfully in the church family, but not actually walk the way of Jesus Christ. Not actually follow the voice of the Holy Spirit. Not heed what God had taught. And so that's what Jesus addresses here. He addresses them saying... Leading out, he says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. That's the sword in his mouth in that description. Remember that, kids? He's got a sword coming out of his mouth in this original vision. And Jesus tells those who've been following this false way, he tells them, repent. Have a change of mind. Get rid of this way of thinking. Get rid of the thinking of Balaam. Get rid of the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Get rid of the notion of compromise. Be aware of ways that you are taking just your culture on board. Be aware. Like I was saying to you kids early on, this is a moment where Jesus cuts right to it and says, this is what you are doing. And I can imagine when they read this letter, it was pretty uncomfortable. Some of them probably felt angry. Some of them felt stupid. Some of them felt ashamed. It, was, it felt like bad news. This sounds like bad news. Because maybe they had, had just been getting on with the sort of groggy groggy awareness of compromise. Have you been in that spot? I, I, I've definitely been in this spot. You're, you're vaguely aware maybe that you're becoming more and more um, attached to your technology, say. Just, I'm just kind of vaguely aware. I check the news cycle more than I, I used to. Or I'm just more interested in Facebook. It's fine. It's fine. 
But I'm not enslaved. That's what we tell, right? I'm not enslaved. Not like those other people. Or maybe you have this sleeping sense, sleepy sense that your habits have been changing. But you don't want to look at it clearly. You know, you don't want to take that moment of clear assessment. There is a myriad ways of compromising with an unholy world. A myriad ways. That's, that's what Satan's world offers. But then the light shines on it suddenly, and it's suddenly bad news. And, and we don't like it. And it feels like bad news that God cares about it. And it's definitely bad news to realize that you've come to love something that's wrong. Or that your heart has been bent towards darkness. That is a terrible realization. That is bad news. That your heart is bent towards darkness. So when a Christian person realizes that you've come under the influence of Satan and that, that you have actually submitted to the evil kingdom, that is a deeply troubling realization. Have you had that? Had that realization? I am cooperating with evil and I am standing against Christ and I didn't even know it. And I was just excusing myself for it. Bad news. But there is good news. There is. And the good news doesn't make sense unless we accept the bad news. The good news is Jesus loves his people, he loves his church. And he will come to speak his word. He'll come to speak his word. To his own. He loves his own. And he's committed to speak his word. So even, even as Jesus tells them this bad news, with the double-edged sword of his mouth, he will speak to them and he will cut to the heart. He will, he will cut. And he cuts to the heart in order to free us from the thing that we've been enchained by. He wants to free his beloved sons and daughters from the compromise, from whatever, whatever that chain is that we submitted to. This sword that's mentioned right here in Revelation, this sword is the same sword of the Holy Spirit that the Lord mentions in Hebrews chapter 4, the word of God, the word of God that comes out of his mouth is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. When God speaks, it cuts deep within. Jesus judges his church and he speaks to his church in order to free us. This is not a judgment of condemnation. Jesus speaks a judgment in order to free us. Praise the Lord. 
That's for us. That's for us. In order to free us from the evil that we've run to, God will speak to us. He loves his people so much. He died for us, and he will fight for us against every lie of the enemy, against every strategy that would ensnare us, every force that would capture us. He is willing to speak about it. So when you hear him, and you hear that voice deep inside, you hear it in your spirit, and you hear him say, repent. Turn back to me. This you can know. He's fighting for you. That's what he says to them. I will come, and with the word of my mouth, I will fight. I will fight against the lie. I will fight against the strategy of the enemy. I will fight against Balaam's teaching. I will fight against the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I will fight against lies. Everything that ensnares you, the Almighty God will fight against because he wants to free us. That is good news. So if you can hear him, if you can hear him, if you hear the word repent, yes, take confidence. That's your confidence. He's fighting for you. You can be sure if you hear, repent, come back. It's him. It's him doing the work of freeing you. Take confidence that you have his Holy Spirit. Because one without the Spirit can't hear that. Can't hear it. He loves you. He's freeing you. Finally, he offers Pergamum, and he offers us a word of encouragement to persevere. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That sounds weird. <laughs> white stone. Uh, in Roman trials... There was a visible sign of acquittal or condemnation. A black stone was the sign to everyone there of condemnation. The white stone is the sign of acquittal. White stone for acquittal. You get the white stone of acquittal. And he says, not only that, but that stone is a sign of everlasting friendship on it because it's got your, a new name, your new name written on it that nobody else knows, just you and the one who has said you're free. This isn't just corporate, that all the kingdom of Jesus gets acquitted. It's personal, personal. Jesus knows you. He knows you. He knows what you struggle with. He knows what you struggled with. As you were growing up, he knows what you struggled with. He knows what you endured. He knows how you compromised. He knows how you compromise right now. He knows how you're going to compromise. He knows what he has freed you from. And what he is right now, today, October 31st, he knows what he's cutting away. He knows what his word is doing in you. Because he knows you personally. So he says, I've got a stone for you. I've got a stone. It's prepared. It's got your new name on it. Wait for it. 
when you join him as a person fully vindicated and free, this is a stone that is a sign that everything's done. It's all gone. It's all gone. All the things, all the things, all the things that were cut away, they are really, really gone. And so he says this to a compromised church of Pergamum. And he says it to us in all of our compromise. So I encourage you, listen to his spirit. Surrender. Surrender to that word as it cuts away. It cuts the chains away. Let him do the work of transformation. You can't do it. Reformation Day, we remember, we are saved by grace according to our faith, not by works lest anyone should boast. The best of our works. The best of our works. So insight from Martin Luther. The moment that we take pleasure in the goodness of our work, we just turned it into a work of pride. Faith. By grace. So be willing. Be willing to conform, to be transformed. Lord, we accept it. We accept the truth of the word of your mouth. That it is your desire to free us from the worship of what destroys us, to free us from everything that would corrupt and hinder us. We accept that you have grace and that you are constantly giving freedom to us. So give us the faith. Give us the faith to receive that. The confidence that when we hear your word repent, that it is you, and that you offer us an embrace. In Jesus' name.